This is one of the most iconic moments in Jesus' life. It's this memorable moment where a woman is caught in adultery. And people bring her to the, the square to stone her, which is the appropriate punishment in their legal system for this crime. And they challenge Jesus. They try to trick him. They put her on spot and humiliate her. And in all of his grace and wisdom, he just diffuses it and he hits the nail right on the head. It's beautiful. You might see as we start, mine has a little parenthetical statement that says, the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Now you know that the Bible that we have is a collection of manuscripts, papyrus, written, ancient writings, ancient scrolls. And so we collect all the ones that we have. This, is, this was the job of the Catholic Church, very, one of the very first jobs of the Catholic Church in the 300s to the 500s. Like, okay, everybody's saying all these things about Jesus. What was authentic? And so we owe the Bible that we have to the scholars and the priests of that day who, who did the work, who traveled to these cities and towns and said, prove to us the veracity of your papyrus that your church has had for the last hundred years. What's it's like, what's that thing for like ancient things? There's a track record that keeps, so you know, it's authentic. You know, like antique roadshow, they've got that thing. Provenance, yes, provenance. The Catholic Church was tasked at that moment to say, prove to us this is legitimate. Now the ones we can prove, let's put them together on the table and see how they fit together. Some were partial, half of the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Some were complete, many were complete, but there were literally thousands. Some person didn't just find a piece of paper, scrap of paper with some scribbles and like make the New Testament. There were thousands of these copies all around and sometimes when they overlapped in one way or another, one would say something one way and one would say something the other way. Now, I had the privilege of looking into this a little bit in my seminary classes. And when I looked more into this, I encourage you to look into it. Because instead of it making me more confused, it made me more confident than ever that what we have is reliable, original words of Jesus and the disciples. Because the differences, when my professors put them side by side on the paper, this would say, the Lord said... And then when someone copied it, the Lord Jesus said. There's no change in meaning there. The entire letter reads exactly the same, but someone put the name of Christ in instead of just Lord. Or Jesus, and then Jesus Christ. So it's technically a difference. It's not a difference. It's what happens when you copy something over. And then when you put them all together, you can say, well, this copy, this is crazy. This said Jesus had like reindeer's antlers and a red nose. Okay, so we're going to scrap that one. And they were able to put out the outliers because there was such a preponderance of evidence. So I believe that this is one of those types of passages where some of these earliest manuscripts didn't have it. But if you, and I'm going to read it for you. Right now, don't flip. In the very end of the book of John, there are two separate statements that get made about Jesus and the things that he did. So just hear this. John 20, 30 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we know there's a million things that didn't make it in. And we can have confidence in what did make it in. And this is one of those things that was here but not here. At the very end of the book of John, there's another statement. He repeats it again. Verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 25. 
Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did, and were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So it just kind of makes me greedy to want to like know all the other stories that weren't passed on, the little moments that never got written down. We don't have it all. What we have is the heart of it. It's the full gospel. It's continuing repetition of the same themes. We see Jesus the same way. And when I read this passage, I see the theology is the same. You know, you don't see something that's like out of place. This Jesus matches the same Jesus you find everywhere else. You see the themes of judgment, reconciliation, forgiveness. You see Jesus acting with authority. I do not condemn you. Like This is consistent. And the people who saw this and included it, even though it wasn't in all the manuscripts, said this is reliable. So I have no problem preaching from this passage. Some Bibles skip it because it's not fully attested. It wasn't in all the thousands. Okay, that's fine. We don't need this to know that Jesus loved us, was born of the Virgin Mary, and died for our sins and rose again. We don't, but it's a beautiful moment, and I think it teaches in a way that's kind of rare. It's like unique. That's why I said iconic. I think this is one of those moments that when you just sit with Jesus and he writes with his finger in the dirt, you're like, oh, I know this Jesus. This is the guy that I met. This is the God that saved me. He's not aloof and distant. He's right there. And so this is a personal event. This is not a story. This is not a fable. This is a, an event that happened in history. And we get to watch as outsiders and learn from Jesus. And it has everything to do with us. It has everything to do with our faith today. It has everything to do, even with our conversation about 49 Main Street, it has everything to do with grace. So I'm not going to miss the chance to read this together and preach over it and pray over it because I love this passage. But I wanted to take that moment just to say, have confidence in what we're reading. This is the Word of God. It is inspired. You can trust it. John 8. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, he came again to the temple. Now all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst and said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is our Jesus. This is the Jesus that reached out to us in our sin and still reaches out to us in our sins today and says, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to save you. But knock it off. Stop hurting yourself. Stop slowly dying. <laughs> Let's go towards the life. Let's pursue it. So a few things we need to say about this before we break it out verse by verse. This is a story about not being judgmental. <laughs> A story about judgment, but that is actually only the surface level of this one. This is actually a story about love. 
right? Who's the main character in this? It is not the Pharisees. It is not Jesus. This is the title you might see in your Bible. Um, the woman caught in the act of adultery, if I can find where it's my... The woman caught in adultery. Right? This is about the woman. This is not just a contrast between how different certain sins are, where the Pharisees felt like they made little small sins, maybe like white lies, but she got caught in adultery. Yes, there's that level. We need to learn to not be judgmental, that God sees every sin on an equal playing field, even though the consequences for some are much bigger than others. They're all breaking God's law. What we actually need to see here, the contrast is between how the Pharisees treated this woman and how Jesus treated this woman. It's a story about how we relate to people in sin, not just about which sins are worse. This story is about the woman. This is her story. Think about her life. There's a couple of times in the Old Testament that talk about stoning someone in the act of adultery. No, capital punishment being the punishment for someone caught in the act of adultery. But there's only one place where it says to use stones, and that's specifically for the case of a woman who was engaged to be married and then commits adultery with another. So that most likely was her story, because the other times it just says any use can be used. But they came to Jesus and said, the law says, they're probably pointing to that Deuteronomy passage that says, here is an engaged woman who had sex outside of that engagement relationship. And I know it says caught in the act of adultery. Some people have kind of taken this to say, well, maybe she's actually caught having the affair. It doesn't necessarily say that, but what, what act was she caught in? What place was she? Was she in his home? Who was this man? Who was she engaged to? This is about the woman. Why, why are we making this about the Pharisees? Jesus looks at her and sees a person. He's like, I'm not trying to like judge the merits of which sins are worse. Get out of here with you trying to make yourself feel good while you try to kill her. He's like, look at her. He loved her. This is a story about how Jesus loved someone caught in sin, not about Pharisees stopping being judgmental. So we're going to take it deeper. We're going to go and say, what is our relationship and how compassionate are we to people stuck in sin? Doesn't this seem to relate to like a a living in a downtown kind of area as a church or something? All sorts of people coming in off the street and meeting. If we're not comfortable being around people who are stuck in sin, we are not acting the way Jesus acted. And this may sound heretical when I say it this way, but hear me out. We have to be more comfortable around sin and less comfortable being in sin. We have to be more comfortable being around people stuck in sin, caught in sin, racked with guilt by sin, being right with them. We have to be comfortable around them, but not be in it ourselves. But usually, I think it's easier to go the other way. We disassociate ourselves with the people that we don't like their lifestyle, we don't like their beliefs, we don't like what they do, the sins are too bad, and so we sequester ourselves in a Christian bubble, but then we give ourselves all sorts of excuses and justifications for the ways we ourselves break the law. We become Pharisees in that moment, when we're not willing to be around someone because of how they live, and yet that's exactly the sort of person that Jesus came to save, and yet we just say, oh, well, I know why I did that, and oh, you know, my tongue sometimes gets the better of me, and oh, I'm sometimes impulsive in how I drink or how I spend my money, or like, no, we need to learn from Jesus. He was super comfortable being around sin, and that's a weird thing to say out loud. That's why it feels like wrong for me to say it, but I think it's right. We need to be comfortable being around sin, but super uncomfortable with any amount of sin that's encroaching into us. 
This is a great quote. I want to give it to you for anybody making notes, taking notes. Please listen to this. There's one more that I'll read. Oh, it's on my phone, stinking. All right, I'll have to summarize it. Sometimes I have my phone in my pocket, but now when it's on Zoom, it's on a tripod over there. But uh, the one quote I can give you off the cuff is from John Newton. And he said, when people are right with God, when a man, I think he says, when a man is right with God, he is apt to be hard on himself and easy on other people. But when a man is not right with God, he is apt to be easy on himself and hard on other people. And that just feels so true. I felt that. I know both sides of that. When I'm with God, you feel like you can extend grace. Like, I'm in an okay place. Things are good. Oh, let's work together. And we're not. It's like, yeah, but what about you? And what about that? And it's like these defensive mechanisms come up. And we treat others the way we would never want to be treated. And we distance ourselves from people who are in sin. Jesus went to them. He went to sinners. But he was holy. All the way 100% pure. So I want us to learn from Jesus to be more comfortable around sin. He didn't say it didn't matter. He tells her, don't live this way. You're going to ruin yourself. You will, you will have all these consequences. Go and sin no more. Zero. I doubt she was able to accomplish zero sins from that day and the rest of her life. But that was his call to her. A call to something better. A call to holiness. But he did not walk away. He stayed there right with her. It's a personal moment. The story's about the woman. And it's a story of love. It's not a story about judgment. It's in there. We can get a lot from this. But it's a story about how we relate to people in sin. So can we go through it again and stop verse by verse where there's moments that we can, we can gather? All right, so Jesus in verse 2 is sitting at the temple. Uh, whenever he sits down and teaches, this is him being an authority. You know, truly, truly, I say to you. So he's acting as an authority. The scribes and the Pharisees brought in this woman who had been caught in adultery and put her in the midst. They put her right in the spotlight. Look at your sin. How many of us would want to be put in that spotlight? Go ahead. Here, there's this person. Here's their sin. Everyone, what are we going to do about it? And they try to trap Jesus. And they say, she's been caught in the act of adultery in the law of Moses commands us to stone such women, what do you say? So Jesus, the test, it bears just stating what was he being tested with. Either he could say, just let her go, we all sin. Well, then his whole preaching gets undermined because he's been saying, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. Not one jot of the law will be done away with until the end of time. Oh, so now it's okay to commit adultery? Right, they wanted that trap. Or he could say, the law is right. God is just. This sin deserves this punishment, and so she should be. He could have said that. But now he's advocating for someone to be killed. The Roman Empire did not allow people to make capital punishment decisions under their reign. So they get to immediately then run to Pilate if that happened. Be like, look at this person. He's trying to execute law. He's trying to do things on his own. He's rising a rebellion. He would have been an enemy of Rome. So Jesus has to navigate undermining his authority versus undermining the Roman Empire. That's the actual test that's happening in this moment. So they, those are the charges they wanted to bring. So Jesus bends down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As I was looking through commentaries, I, I had never thought of kind of what he was writing. But a few of them kind of like explored that thought. I encourage you to think, what do you think he wrote? Some thought he was just like doodling and waiting so that as people asked that question, they could just kind of sit in the shame of their question in silence. Like, shouldn't we kill him? Like, who said that? <laughs> they all just let it hang. And so it was an embarrassment for the Pharisees. Uh, someone had speculated, what if he was writing her sins 
on the ground because he knew every single one of them? What if he was sharing her heart? What if people looking around could see the sins and be like, oh, that's me, that's me? What's an identification kind of thing? I just thought this was such beautiful, it's speculation, but we get to do that in some places in Scripture. Like, I wonder what Jesus was thinking right then. I wonder what he was writing. But what he says as he's letting the moment hang in this very pregnant pause, um, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And he wrote down and bent and, and wrote on the ground once more. But when they heard that, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Don't we become a little bit more self-aware the older we get? Have a few more regrets? It, it was quicker and easier for the older person in that crowd to be like, I'm not without sin. You know, the younger we are, the more sort of black and white things seem, the easier, simplistic, and then you live through life and it's a lot of gray. It's not always black and white. And so the older ones recognized the impossibility of what he had asked first. It's like the wisdom of age, sort of. It's the, the conviction of, of lifetimes. But Jesus is there. What's John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would have eternal life, would not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17 is, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So Jesus isn't here with the big finger pointing. That's not his mission. He's trying to rescue people. So that's our mission. We're trying to rescue people. You don't need to rescue people who have already been rescued. And that's part of why this like, concept of where we are as a church and location and mission matters to me because it's like, well, we're trying to rescue each other? It's like people in the lifeboat just like helping each other into different seats. Who cares? You're saved. Turn two inches to the right and there's someone drowning and like gurgling and going under the water and you know, like saving ourselves. Like, he's just here to save. And so he wanted to save that woman. And he did, right? He saved her. He literally saved her from death on that day. It's her story. It's a love story. Jesus loved her. He did not judge her. And his call to us is, go ahead, go through your memory banks. I'll be the first to raise my hand. Have all of us here been sexually pure our entire lives? Oops. Oops. That's what the statement is about, right? It's a story about sexual immorality. If we were to be judged by our sexual behaviors our entire lives, would we come out good? No. But that's grace, people. That's Jesus. We bring him all the junk and he says, I'll die for that. We bring him all the mess and he says, okay, I'm not condemning you, but we're going to stop that because my way is a better way and I'm going to help you walk it. Here's my Holy Spirit. Here's a church. Here's a Bible. Here's freedom. Here's hope. Let's go. And then you kind of like pick yourself up and move forward. So before we become the ones pointing fingers at all the things, let's just be honest first. Jesus wants to save us from our sins. And if there's anybody here that isn't quite convinced or fully a thousand percent sure that you're in the lifeboat, that you've already been saved, you have to come talk to me. You have to go talk to Danny, talk to anyone, because that's the confidence we have to then keep rowing and picking up other people along the way. If we don't know if we're actually saved, you can't help anyone else. You're, just, you're done. You're, st you're stuck. We need to move past that. And so Jesus is talking about that with this woman. The older walked away first, but we all, if we're going to be honest, all of us would need to walk away in that moment. And Jesus was left alone standing with the woman. So it's personal, right? He's just there with her together, alone. And he said, well, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no, 
Like, thank you. You saved my life. No one threw the first stone. Jesus answered, well, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So if we're going to take something from this, this is kind of like the core of how I want to think about it. When we're relating to people who are in sin, knowingly or unknowingly, maybe happily, just sort of like living a very worldly life with no God in it, so they don't have that forgiveness piece, they don't have that grace, how will we relate to them? It has to be personal for us and personal from them if we're going to follow Jesus' example. This is the failing. Danny and I have talked a few times about sort of like evangelistic approaches of the past. Like certain ways to go about saying certain things. Certain answers you can give when people will ask certain questions. And so you can kind of like learn, oh, this is a good question. Here's a good answer for it. But then it almost becomes sort of like a sales pitch a little bit. Oh, here's this objection. I know how to answer this. It becomes very general. This is question A. Oh, I have answer A. Jesus was personal. He learned where people were at and answered sometimes not even the question they were asking, but like what they needed, who they really were. He didn't just give a generic thing. See, we, we want people to enter into a personal relationship with Jesus, right? Then why are we giving a generic appeal to faith? Kind of like some sweeping apologetic. Well, we know that there's good and evil in the world. And so therefore, if we can acknowledge that, then we must want to see that there's good and evil in us. And so what are we going to do about that? It's all these generic terms which are true, but they lack the personness of someone who hopefully us has actually met Jesus and the sin that was in us, the very specific things that we were fighting with got lifted. And it lacks the personness of the person we're talking to. No one wants a canned response from a Christian. Oh, you haven't answered all my problems. Excellent. Why does your life look like a mess? <laughs> they can easily just put us on the spot. It needs to be personal. So I want to give you two words. And we've talked about these words in other instances the last couple of months, I guess, for various reasons. It's just been on my mind a lot. I think the beautiful words to start with are, for me, Jesus. For me, forgiveness looked like this. For me, freedom from addictions and sin has come in this form. What about you? All of a sudden, we're making it personal. We're sitting down with the one person. We're not bringing the law and saying, everyone sins and here are your sins and this generic God can save generic you. No, if God knows every hair on every, people's, every person's head, then he knows their specific situation. And the way to do it the way Jesus did is to sit down with someone, sit in the dirt, and be like, for you, you're, you're caught in adultery here, you know, this woman. How devastating must that be? And when they dragged you in here, you were fully confident you were about to die because that's the law. Like, what has this day been like for you? And why did you break that engagement vow? Like, that's serious. Like, was it just temptation you just fell to? Was it something you were locked into trying to get away from? What was it? Why did you do that? What do you think about what God thinks of that? How can God save you from this situation that we put ourselves in? Personal. A personal testimony for a person. Not a generic faith for a general equation. 
So we can either err on the side if we're going to talk to someone, if we're going to befriend someone, if we're going to minister to someone, if we're going to share God's love. We can err by being too general. Well, God loves you. This sometimes seems like an easy way because we can relate to like things like hope. Well, we all know it's important to have hope, right? And so you can talk to a Muslim and they can say, it's good to have hope. And you can talk to an atheist and they can say, yeah, hope is important. So we get so general that you're not actually sharing Jesus anymore. Or we can swing the pendulum all the way over here and go so specific. It's like, well, the Bible says this and you're not doing it. So then the law comes in as sort of like the sledgehammer. But Jesus is always in the middle. He's always this third way between you know, fight or flight. I guess this would be flight and that would be fight on our, in our conversation this morning. And he says, God loves you in the middle of your sin. And he loved me in the middle of my sin. So who's going to condemn whom here? We're all saved by grace. But let's fight hard not to sin anymore. Let's turn to God and try to get out of that. Because like we start off by saying, it's easy to just let ourselves off the hook. We know how stressful our lives are. So drinking a little bit too much, well, that's just, you know, sometimes you've got to burn off steam and yeah, maybe a little bit too much, but, right? Easy to make excuses. But to point a finger at someone else who has a drinking problem, much easier to do. How about if we look at ourselves and say, I want to fight every day of my life to be the holiest I could possibly be. Not because I'm trying to earn God's favor, not because it's going to get me to heaven, just because I want to be like him. I want to be with him and it's so much better his way. I just want it. What if we're craving sexual purity in our lives? What if, what if it kept us out of all the problems that our different relationships and moments and encounters have put us into just because we wanted something better? Like, that would be a different kind of life, a different kind of faith to live out. And so we talk about sexuality here. We could talk about addiction. Um, what about the things that are like the weaknesses? What about the fears? What about insecurities? What about lack of self-confidence? All those things that we get stuck in? Well, fear is a sort of a sin, isn't it? <laughs> it means we're not trusting that God can do it or that God can save you. We're too afraid. Our fear is bigger than his power. Our fear is bigger than our faith. And are we trying to save people from fear? There's a lot of people in the world that are afraid. We've been afraid so much these last couple of years, right? We need to be the one that goes and meets a person in their particular fear. Not just a general verse about fear that we just Google real quick and give it to them. Like, what has fear meant in your life? How have you overcome fear of cancer? in the midst of the pandemic. That's a personal salvation that Jesus has given you and journey that he's walked with through you in this time. I don't have it that same way that you do because you walked that. We were just with each other as you walked in. Like that's a better testimony. That's personal. I'm gonna testify to how good God was to you in that way. And then whether someone's afraid of COVID or what someone's afraid of their marriage falling apart or someone's afraid of losing their job, the fear can be anything. But like the way God for me, for you, it's meant this. And so I don't want us to be the judgmental Christians that just find all the things that are wrong with everybody and help them to see how bad they are. <laughs> Please, can we not be that way? I want people to walk in through the doors on any Sunday morning and come looking like anything. Dressing like anything. Actively participating in any kind of lifestyle. Any kind of addiction. 
any kind of antagonism towards Christianity, doesn't matter. God loves them. And we have to get more comfortable being around sin and less comfortable being in it if we're going to reflect Christ. Because if you think that people don't know when we're uncomfortable around them, you're crazy. That, that like rolls off of you like, like a halogen spotlight. And when you try to put on a nice smile with like the fake half smile and like be near someone, but they know you don't approve of them, you will never be able to convince them that God loves them because all they're getting is these vibes off of you like they don't belong, that they're a failure, that they're worthless. But who are we to talk? <coughs> We're failures and worthless except for grace. So our message is about grace. We start off, who are we? We're redeemed. We're like lost causes that somehow got like salvaged. We're all salvage cases. For me, God has meant that in my life. I don't care what's happened in anybody else's life. They've lived their own life. They've gotten to a place. I just want them to know that for me it's meant this. So if that matters to them, then let's talk about it. And if not, yeah, maybe God will bring you around to a conversation with someone else. Maybe this isn't the moment. But I'm not going to ignore it. I'm not going to ignore it. And be like, everything's fine because God's got like stand. He's got truth. But I want to be like, well, we're all in this searching for God's truth. And I want to be harder on myself than I am on the people around me so that the people around me will feel like God loves them as much as I'm saying he does, and as much as I'm sharing that he loves me. That's how you testify. You testify to God's goodness of what he's done for you, and you hug someone who's completely lost, because there's no other way to help someone lost than just like gather them up and point them in a better direction. It's not going to happen by being general. It's not going to happen by memorizing all the right verses. It's going to happen by testifying and making it personal. So if there's anything that we can get from this beautiful, lost woman whom Jesus loved well, is that don't just try to avoid being judgmental. Really think about loving the people around you the same way Jesus loved her, the same way he had dinner at Zacchaeus' house and at Levi's house with all the tax collectors, the same way. You know, the prostitutes washing his feet and pouring oil like that way, comfortable. None of them felt, don't touch me, your sin might rub off on me. Sin's not going to rub off on you. If you're saved, the inside of you is clean, right? So you pursue holiness as an expression of what God has already done. Don't have to be afraid. Someone's sin's going to get on you. That's what we've got the body of Christ for, right? We find ourselves witnessing to someone and slipping into their lifestyle or doing something. That's when the body of Christ says, okay, we go and sin no more, right? There is a verse in Corinthians where Paul cautions believers, don't get caught in the sin you're trying to save someone from. So, yes, there are risks. Which risk are we going to take? Make sure I stay clean, so stay away from everybody and don't help anyone else into heaven? Or take the risk of it being really tricky and complicated and messy? but for the sake of souls for eternity. So please, let's learn the lesson from how Jesus treated her and let's treat people the same way. Let's close in prayer. Father God, you loved us while we were yet sinners and very rarely will someone die for a righteous, for anyone, but for a righteous man perhaps might even be willing but you showed your great love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us Give us sacrificial love. Give us true empathy and compassion where we don't feel it, where we need it but still lack it. 
and may we be comfortable around the people caught in sin around us. May you help us to give them ten fingers out of the trap that they've fallen into. May you help us to see past the specifics of sins and towards the heart and the soul issue. May you bring, may your kingdom grow, may your kingdom come, may we bring your kingdom, may people come into your your glorious grace the same way that we've experienced it. Uh, Give us opportunities for that this week, Father. And we pray that your kingdom will come and your will will be done. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.